the story of Garda whistleblower Morris McKay and the subsequent findings of the Disclosures Tribunal received huge coverage in the national media. A recent two-part RT documentary drew massive audiences as both Morris and his wife Lorraine told their story. But Morris McCabe wasn't the only Garda whistleblower to come forward. Five years ago, John Wilson was spoken of in the same breath as Morris McCabe. Two whistleblowers making serious allegations against their now previous employers on Garda Síochána. Whilst the Garda whistleblower story has since received widespread coverage, five years ago, it was largely ignored. But in 2013, John Wilson did tell his story for a documentary on one production here on RTE Radio 1. And on Saturday, January 18th, 2014, that documentary with John Wilson was broadcast. The first in-depth look into his story and the wider allegations of malpractice within Ungarda Shakona. The media response was muted. It had yet to enter the mainstream. And on that same weekend that the documentary was first broadcast, the then Garda Commissioner, Martin Callanan, was preparing to appear before the Public Accounts Committee. And the day before he did, he wrote to the Garda Ombudsman Commission, or GSOC as they're known, asking them to investigate matters relating to the documentary on one production on John Wilson, which had aired just four days earlier. The following day, on Thursday, January the 23rd, 2014, Garda Commissioner Martin Callanan did appear at that Dáil Public Accounts Committee. And it's there that he made his now infamous comments referring to the two whistleblowers within Angarda Síochána, Morris McCabe and John Wilson. Isn't it extraordinary that it's just these two people and that it isn't dozens, hundreds of other members of Angarda Síochána who are making similar type allegations? We have two people out of a force of over 13,000 who are making extraordinarily uh, serious allegations. And there isn't a whisper anywhere else from any other member of the Garda Corner uh, about this corruption, this malpractice, and all of those things that are levelled against their fellow officers. Uh, I, 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 frankly, I think it's quite disgusting. It's, on a personal level, I think it's quite disgusting. Those comments at the Dáil Public Accounts Committee were directly off the back of the documentary on one broadcast on John Wilson which had aired four days earlier. And just one day after Callanan had written to GSOC, complaining about the allegations Wilson made within the documentary. Since then, we know that the wider story of the two Garda whistleblowers has resulted in the resignation of two Garda commissioners, Martin Callanan and Noreen O'Sullivan, and two ministers for justice, Alan Shatter and Francis Fitzgerald. First broadcast almost five years ago on January 18th, 2014, Narrated by Robert Mulhern and produced by Rodan Kelly. This is The Garda Who Limped. Honest Gardaí out there who are being victimised because they've uncovered the systematic abuse of motoring Deputy. charges, terminations to some very powerful and influential people in this Deputy. state. Twelve months ago, Independent TV Claire Daly stood up in the doll and made an astonishing claim. She said that one of the country's judges, one of those who imposes penalty points, had actually managed to have her own penalty points quashed. Extracted from the Garda Pulse system. It didn't end there. A total of 90,000 fixed charge road traffic offence records were terminated by Garda. Through that period, politicians, journalists, judges and celebrities were all named amongst those who managed to avoid punishment for road traffic offences. 
that uh, Deputy Flanagan had himself had penalty points wiped from his record. And this bizarre series of events began with two men, both Gardaí, both whistleblowers. Nobody ever thought that this would be discovered. One of the whistleblowers went public, which allows us to find out why does somebody become a whistleblower? Is he a serial whinger, a complainer on a grand scale, or is he in fact protecting an important value of our police force? What type of farm in the church? Yeah, it's just a few cows when I was growing up. The Garda whistleblower who has gone public is John Wilson. Sheep and cattle. He is a 50-year-old married father with three children and lives in Cavan, in the same area where he grew up. I built a house on the, um, at the back of the farm where I was born and reared. As a child, John says he was shy, but he didn't shun the limelight. I love serving Mass and I loved ringing the bell and I loved getting the altar and wine and giving it to the priest and I really, really, I loved every minute of it. As well as stage time as an altar boy, another favourite memory was when he took part in a school play about a king who didn't suffer hypocrites. The king who limped. And I was the king. At one point in the play, I had to reverse back up the steps to my throne. And as I did, did my foot go through the flipping one of the fruit boxes. Oh, I never ever forget that. That was in Balignan. That public humiliation didn't dampen John's love for the dramatic. It was further reinforced when TV came into the Wilson household and reinforced with a foreign accent. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. I was actually 11 years of age and we, we, in 1974 we got our first television, a black and white television. And um, I went into this world, oh, I discovered the Rockford Files and Policewoman and Flippin' Kojak. You know, then Starsky moved on to Starsky and Hutch, you know. I absolutely, Quincy, I absolutely, I was in heaven. I lived for those programmes. Hawaii Five-O. My poor daddy wanted me to go and help him outside and I'd be kind of, you know, want to watch Hawaii Five-O and he got taken, he'd tell me, you know, oh, yo, go on in and watch Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho. I ended up in the guards, it's quite by accident, you know. We used to get the Sunday press at the time and my mammy just, she called me, I was outside or whatever doing something and she called me into the house and there was a big advertisement for, for recruitment and they reduced the age limit from 19 to 18 and my mother says they're taking guards now at 18 and why don't you apply? There's a song by Tin Lizzy, you know, you can do anything you want to do and that was played all of the summer. This is Rex. Hi, babies. Hi, Rex. Oh, gorgeous. Right, babies. Gorgeous. Hiya, Jack. Hiya, Jack. This guy here now, he was one of, one of five dogs that I, I rescued down in County Monaghan. I rehoused one of his siblings. I kept the other... Hiya. The other four dogs myself. This is Jack. Jack is a great boy, you know. Always liked animals, always liked dogs. All they want is to be minded and looked after and to give back so much love and affection in return, you know what I mean? They don't, they don't stab you in the back or they don't talk behind your back. 
His mother's enthusiasm paid off and John's application was successful. But the long journey from Cavan to the Garda Training College was marked by trepidation and emotion. Mummy and Daddy brought me down. I mean, Mummy and Daddy went back. And um, I was upset. But looking forward to, um, you know, I was filled with, filled with um, apprehension and whatever. I mean, I had no idea what was, what was facing me, you know. Like no confidence, so very, very. You know, my confidence was fairly, was fairly low. Despite having low confidence, John settled down and managed to graduate. And the passing out ceremony—it's a day he never wants to forget. It's a perfect day. It was a feeling of elation when I passed out that day. It was a feeling of great elation. My parents were very, very happy and my brothers and sister were there and all, you know, they were all there and they were all delighted. You know, you have an odd day, occasional day in your life that you can classify as a perfect day. And that day was one of them. I mean, nothing went wrong. It was just fantastic. It was a perfect, perfect day. And it wasn't his last perfect day in the guards. In fact, his first day on the beat in Dublin came pretty close. I was down around Westmoreland Street, Aston Quay, Wellington Quay. Before Temple Bar was developed, and you had a place called Sloopy's was up there. It was a teenage disco. This was like, you know, downtown New York to me from watching all the cop programs. This was amazing. I was out, I was out in the, out in the street. I was, I, was, I was let loose as a police officer. I never, ever, ever forget that beat. I was, oh, Lord. It was like I, every single minute of it, I enjoyed it. It was absolutely amazing. It was a nighttime and um, all the lights and traffic and throngs of people and whatever, you know, it was absolutely, I was, I was starstruck. For John in those early days, being on the beat in Dublin city centre echoed the version of policing from childhood TV shows. And it was still a long way from when he would turn against the system and his colleagues and become a whistleblower. Even the routine cases at that time held interest for John. My first prisoner was a 70-year-old man from Donnycarney. And he'd been caught shoplifting in some shop off Grafton Street or whatever. So I arrested the poor devil anyway. Oh, I remember treating him like cotton wool. I couldn't do enough for him. And I was kind of, you know, I was so... This was a big thing for me, my first ever prisoner. And he was remanded to court number six, which was presided over by Judge O'Hui. And didn't I start... I spoke up for your man. It's something I've always done throughout my career. I've been criticised for doing it on times because I, I always prosecuted and defended at the one At the one time, I was accused of doing that. So you were conflicted about the arrest? Well, I mean, I was I was sorry for the unfortunate man, you know, 70 years of age. I mean, I didn't know his history. I mean, and I wasn't at that stage. I mean, if if it had been today, I would have done a serious background check and in family circumstances. But at that stage, I was just a young guard, just doing what I was told, what I was trained to do. So I was given evidence in court anyway. 
and I said that I arrested him, that he was caught taking the stuff, whatever, and I then went into defending him. What did you say? I just said he's a poor man, he's, he's in bad circumstances, and he's, uh, he's 70 years of age, and, you know, he's, he's, he was cooperated fully with me, and who he just... <laughs> he, leaned, he took off the glasses and leaned down. <laughs> he says, I'm not going to jail him, guard. You needn't worry. That's what he said to me, off the bench. John had other things to worry about. He didn't know it then, but he was about to take his first steps on the road to becoming a whistleblower. He was about to learn a very important lesson about equality in the eyes of the law. I was on the beat one day and I got a radio message to return to the station for a phone call. So I wandered back to the station anyway. There was two of them in the office. There's going to be a phone call for you shortly. So hang on here. There's a very important man going to ring you now in, in a while. So I hung on for ages and I got this phone call and the phone was handed over to me and there was a very prominent politician on the phone and I had prosecuted a lady for she worked with him and um, I'd prosecuted her for something like no seatbelt no tax whatever something like that I can't remember the actual offence and I had her summoned and he said John um, will you take care of it please and um, I said yes fine and I subsequently looked after it. But um, that was expected of me. That was expected of me. I mean, being called back to take the phone call. They knew what the phone call was for, sure. They, they knew the contents of the phone call. And um, I realised at that stage that I was in the big bad world. <coughs> My dog came down, kind of barking at the bedroom door, which is not unusual because... He would often come down. I mean, if one of the cats took his bed, he'd come down for, for me to go up and remove the cat off his bed, you know. But I went up anyway this, this morning and uh, I opened the door and there was a, a rat tied to the outside handle of the door. What was your reaction to it? Were well, you scared, were you? Well, scared. Um, I mean, a rat has specific connotations. I mean, a rat means a rat, somebody who has, let's say, been a tout, kind of given information to a, a police force, which is ironic, but it was obviously done as a warning to me, you know. I would hate to believe that one of my colleagues tied the rat to the door, you know. John Wilson, good morning to you. Good morning, Marion. What's your problem? Well, simply put, Marion, I have a condition called folliculitis barbie. As I said, I'm not a dermatologist, but I mean, basically, the, the, the layman's interpretation is that, that shaving, um, as I am required to do on a daily basis, causes severe discomfort. Since the 80s, John Wilson had been campaigning within the guards to be allowed to wear a beard. Pop through the skin. The, obviously you're having difficulty with the Gardaí uh, over this. Yeah, I'm in the process of taking, uh, maybe it, it'll be actually a test case under the Equality Act on okay. the grounds of gender and I'm taking, I'm, I've, my illegal advice is that uh, my constitutional rights have been breached so I'll be taking two It cases. will be very, very interesting to see how things pan He out. was eventually but successful meantime, but he put himself on Garda management's radar years before he put them on everyone else's. I used to work in FX Buckley's on Chatham Street and he used to come in and buy his lunch from me. Dublin wasn't all bad. 
John's beat took him past a city centre shop where he met a young woman named Anne. So there was a few from Pier Street that used to come in and I invited them to my 21st. So John came to my 21st and a couple of weeks later rang me in work to tell me he was on duty in the museum and he had no food. And could I drop him in some food when I finished work? So I said I would, so I bought sandwich, bar chocolate, I think packed crisps, can of coke or something like that. So went into the museum and I got a guide tour and it was only afterwards I found out that he had loads of food. Everybody had dropped him in food that day and it was just an excuse to get me to go around. We got married within two years. Marion Agard, your parents, were they concerned? No, it was a secure job. You were kind of set for life sort of thing. Do you remember any times when you'd cause for concern or were there days when you were incredibly proud? Did he tell you the incident about the gun in the car? The early 90s, when I was in plain clothes in Kilmainham, myself and a colleague were out one night and we were patrolling around James's Street, that direction. We were both in plain clothes, we weren't detectives, just in plain clothes duty. And um, I used to carry the gun with me all the time. We got a call that there was two guys below on Parkgate Street on the forecourt of a filling station down there putting on balaclavas. We headed down from James Street down uh, Mount Brown into Old Kilmainham, flying towards Parkgate Street. So we were just passing Carrigan's pub. It's a famous pub in Old Kilmainham. It's still there. And I copped the guy at the door, approaching the door with a balaclava and a handgun. I shouted at the driver, robbery, robbery, robbery. He jammed on the brakes. I could see there was a, a motorbike up ahead on the left, obviously the getaway driver on the bike. My colleague, he reversed back towards the, the front door. As he did so, the guy with the handgun, he ran, ran alongside the car. He was trying to get to the bike and my colleague tried to cut him off. He tried to cut him off with the, with the patrol car, you know. So your man turned Danny when he pointed the gun in the flipping window. So I, I just pulled the gun and let fly, you know. Now as it happens, and you know, Jesus Christ or somebody in heaven was praying for me because if I'd been driving the car, I would run over him. But um, anyhow, he managed to get onto the back of the bike. I got out of the patrol car and I took aim. And somebody was praying for me because I, I very nearly pulled the trigger again and I would have killed, I would have shot somebody. There was a few people in the area. I probably would have shot somebody. And, and as I said, thanks be to God. But anyhow, the guys got away. There was one case which has remained with me for many, many years. You know, I mean, this might be seen as, as gross hypocrisy, but there's one case that has troubled me for many, many, many years. The case John is talking about occurred one night with a colleague out in patrol when they seized what they suspected was stolen property. While seizing it, John says his colleague injured himself through no fault of the suspect. However, when they returned to the station, the suspect was charged with assault. 
I don't think I mentioned that story to anybody ever in my life. You're the first person I've told it. And to my eternal shame, and I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because, as I stated earlier on, I never added on to evidence. I mean, I always done my job fairly. I always done the best I could, but, you know, I, I by keeping my mouth shut and saying nothing, you know, I suppose I was as guilty as the guy who stitched up the, who stitched up the young fellow. Did you ever have a conversation with the, the guard who brought the prosecution against the young fella? Um, I, he would have been fully aware that I wasn't actually overly impressed, but he would have laughed it off and said, "Fuck off." But I remember on one occasion, I was in plain clothes. We got this this poor fella. He was a drug addict. He was an oh, absolute wreck. I got him wandering two cars, and we had done nothing at this stage. So um, I arrested him on spec for a handbag snatch. Do you think that was fair? Well, I mean, he, he was going to, I mean, okay, I, I, I arrested him on suspicion of having committed a handbag snatch, you know what I mean? That, that, that's what we used to do. I mean, there was pressure on to solve crime. There was no point, you know, Johnny going out in the car and coming back in that evening and, well, I've I prevented 10 crimes. Well, no, 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 no. Where are the results, Johnny boy? You know, we want to see twos. We were pressured. But I remember this guy, I arrested this guy on suspicion of a handbag snatch. I just, you know, we'll go back to the station and we'll pick out something. But anyhow, back to the station anyway. Took your man in anyway. And she, the poor devil didn't know what day it was. And by the time he left the station, he made a statement admitting 20 handbag snatches. I've seen terrible things. I've seen prisoners getting beat. Now, I'm not saying that some of these people didn't deserve a clipping, but, you know, it was, it was wrong. You know what I mean? If people were gotten stolen cars. Now, I know at the time, you know, adrenaline is flowing and everything else, and these guys, you know, they have endangered lives and whatever, they've been flying around the place. You know, as a police force, it's up to the courts to dish out the punishment. But um, on one occasion, there was a guy got in a stall and it was a major chase, a major chase all over the place and it ended up... And I remember that I, I went over to the car myself and I, I leaned in the window and hit him a slap on the head. I gave him a punch in the face, you know. John wasn't reported for his behaviour on that occasion and therefore didn't face disciplinary action. However, he was censured. For that time, he discharged a gun through the windscreen of the car. They told me not to carry a gun out again. So that was fine for the following few months or whatever. We used to drive around with one arm as long as the other. And um, on one occasion, there was a prisoner needed medical attention. He was a serious criminal. He was detained in St. James's Hospital. And I was ordered to go up and to do an arm protection post. And I said, but if I'm not good enough to mind protect my colleague... How am I good enough to protect some some thug, some prisoner in the hospital? But eventually I argued and I was ordered to do it and I did it. And I came back and I applied to go back in uniform. I told him to stuff it up there behind, you know, that I wasn't going, if I wasn't good enough to mind my colleague, I wasn't good, good enough to mind a fellow in the prisoner in the hospital. And I went back, went back in the uniform. Going back into uniform, it didn't mean John was opting for a quieter life. He persisted in challenging his superiors. 
I think some of it stems from the way he was brought up by his parents. You know, the right from wrong. Like, he is a, a very caring person. He'll go out of his way to help anyone. One of those he went out of his way to help was a former colleague who'd been transferred to another district. He was sent up to clean up the district. What does clean up mean? You know, there were a number of very, very serious issues in the place in relation to, to discipline. He discovered that crimes were not being investigated and he discovered some very, very shoddy practices in the, in the district. Then John heard a nasty rumour, as he calls it, about this former colleague. I contacted my colleague and um, he broke down on the phone and he told me that, he said, you have no idea what's happening. And I met up with him. He relayed to me what was happening in his life and in the Garda district. According to John, what was happening in the Garda district was that despite having been sent there to clean up procedures, John's former colleague was left feeling isolated and unsupported by Garda management. This concerned John and he brought those concerns to a representative in the Garda union. According to John, the union rep went bananas, giving out about John's colleague. And he described it as vile and vomit and everything else. And he said that what that man wants is a bullet in the head. And he done that, right? I was disgusted. John kept in touch with his former colleague. And in the course of their conversations, his colleague mentioned strange patterns in the penalty point system and the way points were being quashed, or as the Gardaí call them, terminations. We discovered clusters. The same person being, being caught three and four times and and go through the excuses, genuine reason, humanitarian grounds, and something, something was wrong. I started doing a bit of mooching around kind of on the pulse system, just initially just kind of small, you know, in checkout, various things, terminations, but it didn't take me too long before... Was it just curiosity at the beginning? Well, I wanted, to, I wanted to garner full knowledge about what was happening, and I established pretty soon, we established pretty soon that this was happening in every village in the country. Certain people were getting caught on multiple occasions for speeding and whatever, and they, were, and they were getting away with it. Shocking malpractice, corruption. Really, you were shocked after all your years in the police? This is well, that well, of course, we all knew that favourites were being done for certain people, but it's the scale of the favouritism shown that shocked us. If a Garda discovers something like this in the force, the procedure is to bring it to an individual known as the confidential recipient. This is what John did. I made a complaint in relation to a small number of terminations that I believed were corrupt. The other man emailed Andy Kenny's office and he emailed a few more government departments as well, outlining very, very serious allegations in relation to the ticket fix. You know, months went past. I waited. And waited. He got fed up waiting and decided to take his allegations to independent TD, Claire Daly. What's going on, Claire Daly? What do you think? Well, I don't know, but certainly the scale of the documentation that we've seen is that really this is a systematic ticket-fixing scandal, really, where it's almost now considered to be a perk of the job, where if you know a Garda, uh, you can get... In the aftermath of that broadcast, to use that old vernacular saying that the shit hit the fan in, in Garda headquarters, they launched an immediate inquiry. It was to find out who the whistleblowers were, basically. The name soon came out, and even though John wanted to stay anonymous, he was identified within the Gardaí as a whistleblower. I walked into a little kitchen, not far from the main public office, and uh, there were a number of people that I would have 
joked with and chatted with and you know I would have been known as a messer you know and there were about, I think about three people and when I walked in two of them got up and left there was a third person there and um, this person stood up and just looked at me and said stones and glass houses and walked out you know people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones in other words kind of pointing the finger at me you know and um, I found that day, I found that very very hurtful Were you ever asked to terminate points? Um, no, no, I was never. But for someone in policing, as long as you're in policing now, is that not unusual? Um, if this practice is so widespread, would it not be unusual for you never to be approached to do a termination? I have used my discretion throughout my service on hundreds, hundreds of occasions. I mean, I didn't prosecute everybody that I came across, you know, breaking the law, for God's sake. If I stopped you or stopped an individual speeding or whatever on the mobile phone, the discretion comes into play then. I have the discretion whether to issue you with a ticket for speeding, to issue you with a ticket for using your mobile phone or otherwise. That's discretion, right? Once you leave the scene, then that's that's discretion. That's it. That's the end of it, right? But if I stopped you and I gave you a ticket for speeding, no senior Garda officer has the right to undermine my authority or the authority of the thousands of guards who have issued tickets down through the years and they were terminated behind their backs. It undermined the authority of members of Angarda Shia Khanna. Just, I'm very proud of what he did. Like, I'll stand behind him, you know, I think he was right in what he did, but just the way things are working out, it's, it's tough and it's, you know, it's hard on the family life too, you know. Say, in, in, in the last couple of years since this since John has been fighting the penalty points, do you still try and remain detached from what's going on? To a certain extent, you have to. Have you stopped reading papers? Have you stopped listening to news bulletins yes. for fear that...? I have, yeah. We're living it here in the house and then you put on the television and it's on, the radio it's on. You just... Just to have a break. I don't know whether it was just like a self-protection sort of thing, you know... For me and for the children. The children, Anne and John's three children, have all left school and are going to college. The youngest is Paul. It can be tough just how it's nearly taken over Dad's life and it's tough in a way that I'd say the only two days that I haven't seen him on the phone running was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and that's because Mam warned him not to nearly to turn off the phone. I know it's frustrating that it's nearly took over. He didn't... He obviously didn't mean for it to, but it's nearly just took over his life. And that's all that's really driving him at the minute, is just this case and trying to resolve it. My three children are amazing, you know, and I have been extremely lucky with my family. You know, I haven't always been the best husband in the world. I, how will I say, I have taken a lot of things for granted. I'm a very, very stubborn individual. I have an obsessive personality, you see. That's, that's my, you know, you could say it's a blessing or a curse, but I'm very, very focused. I'm very single-minded. And I suppose my obsessions affected my family life and my difficulties in relation to, or my, my decisions and my actions in relation to the penalty points, corruption scandal, that predominated in my household. The same when I was fighting the Beard case. Until logic prevailed within Garda management, that took up every waking moment of my life. Life in the Gardaí after the Clare Daily announcements was becoming increasingly difficult for John. 
While on the job itself, John was no longer allowed access to the computer system. Things came to a head when his superiors denied him permission to carry out some basic functions of the job. And I was very, very upset and... Um a career that I loved a job that I loved doing and um, it was no longer tenable I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore so I um, went back to the station and a couple of hours later I just I went sick in the book I went sick I, I, sorry I got onto I got onto Monaghan and I went sick with with um, work-related stress, bullying, and harassment. That's what I put down. That's what I got to put down the bottom of the forum. And I went back. To, I went home anyway, and it was, you know, it was, it was um, this the way my career was going to end? I mean, I'd done nothing wrong. I mean, I had reported corruption. For Christ's sake, corruption! We, we, we are the police force in the country. And um, I just had a chat with my family and whatever, and I decided to, to, to apply to go. So after 30 years in the guards, John resigned in May 2013. I guess when he explained it to us as well that he nearly had no choice. He'd always had us to fight for everything and fight for what we believe in. I suppose he just saw the way some people had to go and pay for these penalty points, for example. You know, where some people had to pay and other people didn't and it wasn't fair, you know. Now that John had made his decision to resign from the guards, he came out publicly as one of the whistleblowers. Report on penalty points earlier. I spoke to retired guard John Wilson, who first raised the issue. An internal guard report underplayed what he and the other whistleblower were claiming about penalty points. The minister says in this case it's a matter of concern that the allegations made by this guard, the whistleblower, you, John, were in many instances seriously inaccurate and without any foundation in fact or else involved an incomplete understanding of the facts. Now, how does that make you feel this evening? How can you carry out an investigation into these serious allegations without talking to either of the two whistleblowers? Yeah, but there's also people, though, that think he was mad at what he was doing. Like, I was in the supermarket one day and a person approached me and kind of, oh, what's he on about now? You know, I don't need that when I'm going shopping. Like, I think he's right on what he did. I'm very proud of him. I don't know whether if I was in the situa- same situation I could have done or had the guts to do the same. I'd like to think I would, but I can't honestly say. Well, at the start when people, maybe people might bring it up, I wasn't too comfortable, but it was maybe a bit awkward. But now I'd be comfortable enough at it because I'm nearly used to it at this stage. Do, do you talk to your to your friends about the, the case that your dad's involved in? Because obviously he's in the papers quite a bit and mentioned in the doll and do you have conversations with people in college about it? Um, well, anyone that would know about the story and know Dad and myself, they might ask just how's it going and then on class once or twice there was, we were on about ethics and someone brought up the case and uh, one of my lecturers was quite supportive of Dad and Dad and everything he was quite impressed in what he was doing but What was the conversation in the class? One lad even said that he got penalty points struck off before they were all nearly agreeing that it's who you know. If, if you're powerful, you can nearly get away with it. This, this policy, this, these practices were widespread throughout the Garda Síochána. 
you know, I know that the Garda Commissioner knows that for God's sake. I mean, he he, he was a guard too. I mean, he, he went up, he, he went through the rank system. He knows the way the system works. He knows that guards were looking after guards. He knows that guards were looking after their families. He knows that guards have looked after people in, in positions of power in this country. But instead of coming out and acknowledging and accepting the complaints that myself and my colleague made, Official Ireland decided to rubbish us. They thought that this story was just going to die. It was just going to get a couple of weeks' notice in the media. But um, how wrong they were. We're outside Drumcar Church here. And my parents are also buried in here. You know, when you asked me uh, yesterday in relation to the, to the support that they would have given me, my daddy would have given me 100% instant, instant support, no problem. Mammy would have thought, thought more about the consequences of my actions. So, someone might listen to some of the conversation over the last couple of days, the incident with the beard, some of the other things that happened. They might say, um, this John Wilson guy sounds like, you know, he's, he's a bit of a troublemaker. Is there a part of you that that enjoys a challenge and enjoys challenging up? I've always challenged. Uh, if, if I perceived injustice, I've always challenged it. And it's very, I suppose, not a very wise thing within a, a disciplined organisation like, like the police force. But John, we live in a small country um, where people are very close community-wise and people have always done each other favours. Most people don't care about this penalty points issue. Most people don't see this as an issue. As you rightly say, it's well known that we are a nation of strokers and an awful lot of decisions are taken and are not on a wink basis. Totally unacceptable. Um, that's not the image that our government are portraying. We are being portrayed as being a very modern um, European state, but a substantial number of people have benefited from uh, their connections but the vast majority of Irish people have no connections The state's financial watchdog has revealed that a fifth of motorists avoid penalty points because their cases are not pursued for various reasons. Controller and Auditor General Seamus McCarthy said there were no controls in the system to restrict Garda members with the facility to terminate penalty points from doing so in cases outside their authority. Among the excuses for the penalty points issues were late for a swimming lesson, there's one classic one that a man was rushing home because his cattle were being attacked by bees. Excuse penalty points because the delivery of clothes to St Vincent de Paul. A few people said the road was wide and empty, that's where they were speeding. While the rest of the country was laughing in amazement at excuses deemed OK to let motors off fines, John felt some satisfaction. The controller's report, according to John, vindicated him and his colleague. Maybe satisfaction is not the right word. You spend a few days with him, and probably because this is a turbulent time, going public against his former colleagues, giving up his job, he seems uneasy and dissatisfied. It leaves you wondering, when he joined the guards, if he joined a group of people, or signed up for an ideal. But then again, 
Maybe having an officer like John Wilson, a policeman who doesn't quite fit in, maybe that was bad for the guards as a group, but good for the guards as an ideal. Either way, you could never say John was satisfied. If somebody said, are you a maverick, John, what would you say to that? I am a maverick, yes. I am an outsider. I see myself as an outsider, you know. Do you enjoy being that? I've known no other way. 